Hello and welcome back to what is a very belated episode of the Seriously Good podcast. We said we would do it weekly, but we had a break for internationals and also because my co-host who joined me today, Danny Waddell. How are you doing now, Danny? Uh, I'm much better. Looking forward to the Easter Easter weekend, extended break. Now I'm back to my full health. But yeah, I do apologise for missing last week, but Thankfully, you put together that nice little Lucatoni uh, piece, and we'll be back with the full pod today. Yeah, this is a full podcast that we're going to do around Bologna, aka the back doorway that Danny's actually going to talk about Scottish players for once instead of just forcing it into every conversation. But as always, before we get into that, we're going to start with a little roundup of what's been happening. And because we've been off for like two weeks, we actually have a lot to talk about uh, because the league has changed. A little bit. So first we're going to start not with the league, but with the Champions League draw, just because it happened uh, right before the international break. And it seems like with this Champions League draw, there is actually a really high chance, unless Benfica channel the spirit of like 1960s Benfica, that an Italian side is going to end up in the final because Napoli, Inter and AC were all drawn, drawn on the same side of the draw. And I just want to ask Danny, what do you, who do you think out of that... Rabble is going to get there, and it isn't. And isn't it definitely Napoli? Well, I, I don't know because I guess we'll touch on it. Because Milan absolutely wiped the floor with Napoli. I know they've won the league basically, but Awesome Hens a doubt for the game, the first leg of the tie, and without him, there's quite a significant drop off in the next player, which is either you move Politano inside or you play um, Giovanni Simeone. And Inter have lost their last three in the league and Benfica are very, very good. So I don't know if it's out of the question that Benfica somehow make it to the Champions League final. I think Napoli are probably the most likely and Awesome Hen, I think, probably will be back for at least the second leg. And, and if they can keep it kind of close or even still win um, against Milan in the first leg, then it, it should be them that go to the final. Yeah, there is there is a kind of expectation for everyone that Napoli will kind of be the one that just kind of rises out of it because of the best team. But I also have thought that they've kind of put themselves so far ahead in the league that that even if they started to get knackered, it's not going to show in the league because they'll probably end up just winning because of how far they are ahead. The problem is, is if they get knackered because they kind of played the same eleven most games, then they'll probably start to show it in the Champions League and in those knockout fixtures, as we saw like against AC Milan, they were just completely toothless which we kind of were going to touch on now, like they got absolutely battered. Like Liao actually turned up for, for for once in the last couple of months. I think he's kind of just been... He, he, he's still, he's still when he, on his day, he's still one of the best players in the league quite easily. But I think he's just been very inconsistent this season and especially when everyone was kind of matching him with Kedetsteria, um, who he's facing this week. It's kind of like Kedetsteria has been incredibly consistent, whereas Liao has shown the flashes of this great player that won the... Uh, Serie A player of the season last season, but on at the weekend he was disgustingly good. Like I don't know, they had absolutely no answer for him, and I think you probably would agree with me there. Yeah, I mean he he really stood up to the challenge. It was like that. Milan know they've lost their their title, but they weren't going down without without a fight. Uh, and even Salamakers somehow channeled his inner Maradona and scored a wonder goal in the stadium named after Maradona, which was a, a shock. But yeah, Milan just absolutely battered Napoli. I don't know if we can look too much into it in terms of the Champions League ties because Napoli, it can kind of tend to happen that they, you kind of drop off when you know you've won the league already. I mean, 
I remember when Liverpool just won the league and then they got absolutely battered off of City by the same scoreline. I think it was sort of similar to that that game, although Napoli aren't officially champions, they are. So, yeah, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks, but it, it was a great, great win for Milan who really need it because they leapfrogged Roma to go third. It's an absolute scrap in the top four at the moment because as we're going to talk about. But actually, if you look at the stat for Napoli, I'm not sure if they can be too disheartened by it. They had 20 shots, only four on target. That'll obviously change if they have Victor Oshiman in striker rather than uh, Simeone uh, to Milan's 14-8. and eight. They had 61% of the possession, Napoli, which is something that's... is I mean, 39% for AC Milan and getting four goals is kind of showing that they were properly counter-attacking, which might show their approach to the Champions League tie of how they'll go about it. But I think... In terms of the game, it just seems like one of those games where it just went wrong. And maybe we can't take too much away from it. Maybe we can, we don't know. We'll have to have a look. Because I think we'll have to see with Napoli how they do over the next couple of weeks uh, with those ties against Milan. Now, somehow, as I said, it's a bit of a scrap in for the top four at the moment. Like It's actually quite fun to watch the top four because obviously Napoli have so far ahead that he pretty much won it now. When you actually look below them, it's kind of a lot more scrappy. And somehow, out of all that, Lazio are now currently four points clear in second. Maurizio Sarri has been doing a great job at the club that everyone loves to hate. <laughs> so, I, I think that Lazio are probably good for it. I think Lazio will actually get out finishing the top four this season. I don't think they'll drop out because they actually look like the team that's the most consistent out of it. But then we look below that. Milan are on 51 points, Inter on 50, Roma are on 50, uh, but a slight behind on goal difference. Atalanta are on 48, Juventus are on 44. So it's still up to play for in the final 10 games there. Uh, who do you think so is going to get the top four? Do you think, Danny? Out of those, or who do you want to make like a who do you want to make like a a, a non-committal uh, prediction for yeah, the top four? I didn't. Don't love that question. <laughs> I think, yeah, Lazio are probably good for at least finishing fourth. They've got four points on Milan. They are... Everything's clicking and Sarri's got them playing his football. And he's got them playing his football with Immobile sitting on the bench. So even if they get a wee bit stuck with plan A, they have like the top scorer and what B you could tell me of 19 out of the last 20 seasons and Mobley was the top scorer in the league and I'd believe you um, so they've got that kind of plan B which is as good a plan B as anyone in the, in that race I think I think we'll see Milan kind of take this by the scruff of the neck now and make it in and then that last place Inter have the second best squad in the league so they really should but they kind of keep falling flat on their face and they will have an eye on Benfica. Um, and if they get through Benfica, which I don't know if they'll do, but then they'll have an eye on Champions League semi-final. I guess it comes down to a certain appeal case on that fourth place with Juventus, because I think if that gets overturned, they're just going to leapfrog everyone and go, I think they would be second, or they might be third now. I think the second, because it's 15, it's 15 points in it, so there'll be 59, which is four above Lazio. And then they'll be within 12 of Napoli, so I, you know that could be the worst possible scenario of Napoli to start falling apart at the end. It, it, I think Steven would be very, very smug, but he probably would hate how, how he got there. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hate the destination, but he would hate how he got there. If you don't like that last question, Danny, I'm going to move on to a second one. How do you feel about Fiorentina just keeping on winning and now ninth in the table after you call them the most disappointing team of the season so far. I'm very, very happy about it. Like, I really like Fiorentina. Um, 
and everything's just clicked. They, for a long time, struggled to have a striker after Vlavic left. They signed Cabral at the same time, but he never clicked, and now he has, which is really good. Uh, they won 2-0 last night in the Coppa Italia semi-final first leg against Cremonese, so they're going to have a they're going to have a final on their hands to win a trophy. They're still going in the Conference League. They've climbed up to, are they ninth now? One place behind the team we'll be talking about, uh, Bologna. So yeah, everything's clicking. I think it's a really good platform for Italiano for next season to, to build on this and sort of go again and challenge for maybe a Europa League place next year. But yeah, very nice team, some very good young parts, some very good experienced players. And... Where they were in the league was disappointing, but I think if you looked at the underlying stuff, they really shouldn't have been there. And it's just sort of that finding their feet and, and they've come through that spell, which is really good. Yeah, uh, it's the, the Brightonisms, as I said, the making a lot of XG but not converting it. Another team that we kind of mentioned was a bit disappointing, but kind of actually figured out how to play football again is Sassuolo. They're now currently 12th. And then we look down the table and we look at the bottom and it seems like Cremonese are definitely going down. They've not capitalised on that one win that they got. They've lost three and drawn one in the last four. Sampdoria look to join them probably because they're, they've lost the most games in the league this season with 19 and they don't seem to be able to find any sort of form or goals or actual like good outlets in their team. And then it's kind of the final place in relegation. At the moment, it looks like Verona are going to be there because they're on 19 points. But Spezia are just currently hovering above them on 25. And they're kind of they're kind of just chugging along at the moment. They're not doing great things, but they're kind of just keeping themselves above water. Um, I think I mentioned on Twitter the other day that I think Ethan Alpadu has been excellent in this back end of the season because obviously Kiriol left and he was kind of their main defensive outlet. And Ampadu's kind of stepped in and done a lot. But I don't think you can rule out Lecce um, coming into this because they're on 27 points. They're eight points to go for relegation and they have lost five games in a row. So they beat Atalanta and then they've lost five games in a row. And they gave Empoli their, their first win in five in their last game. So yeah, I, I'm thinking in terms of relegation, I think we can both probably safely say that Cremonese and Sampdoria are going down. And I'm not going to ask you who you think is going to be the third, but... Is there anyone you kind of want to highlight, you think, that's just kind of... Yeah, I've just looked at Lecce's like, upcoming fixtures and it is extremely rough as well. Like, they've got Napoli, Napoli tomorrow, so we're recording on Thursday, so Napoli Friday night. Then they've got a big game against Sampdoria. Then they're away to Milan. Then they're at home to Udinese. Then they're away to Juventus. And then after playing Verona, which is probably the biggest game of their season because Verona are the ones that would possibly reach them they're away to Lazio so they're away to a lot of the the top teams in the league and they're not finding form so yeah I'm concerned they've been tripping over the laces all the way to the boxing ring and now they're actually going to start a fight which is the uh, which is the way of putting that but I think that's kind of it for the league we're gonna we probably should touch on a couple of things that have happened in the league uh obviously one of the big things that's happened over the last couple of days was Lukaku got sent off against uh, Juventus for in the final minute for a second yellow card he scored a penalty did his celebration and was sent off for over celebrating towards the fans 
what is poignant about that is that he did the celebration he always did and also was calling out the fans and over-celebrating to the fans because they'd been racially abusing him throughout the match. And there's been multiple videos and multiple reports. It's like the referee knew about it before he did it. He like Lukaku had pointed it out to him earlier. And it's kind of ridiculous that we still have this problem in, in Italy and with the Serie A where it's so obvious that it's happening and the players are just told, you've just got to stick it out. And it seems really weird that some of the players on the pitch just seem to be completely fine with it and happy to let or I just say, oh, just just, just, just be quiet and deal with it. It's just, oh, it's just how it happens. I think like that's not how we should be dealing with it. It should be quite clear that that what Lukaku... Lukaku's red should be overturned, but it was quite clear what Lukaku did was in a reaction to being consistently racially abused throughout that match. And obviously, I don't think I have to really say that we here on this podcast completely denounce it happening. So, Danny's now raised a hand on the call. I don't, I don't, I don't know why it makes that stupid noise. Yeah, I mean, what Syria never do anything to help racism, and then pretend to be shocked when it keeps happening. Like, I've never seen a league handle a subject so poorly. Like they put out those pictures of monkeys a few years ago, which was just the most ill-advised thing I've ever seen. They're more focused on piracy and illegal streaming than they are their own players getting racially abused. And then you've got weird comments like from Danilo after the game saying, yeah, it's bad, but what does he expect? And things like, like it's just ridiculous. It needs sorted out. But it's happening in like every league as well. Like it, I think there was a situation in France last week. France has this completely different issue that the, the, the French government have actually made it illegal. Or like the French FA have said it's illegal to actually stop and break for Ramadan. And one player, I think it's Nantes, has been actually kicked out of the squad for the duration of Ramadan because he complained that he wasn't able to break his fast. It's ridiculous. Like racism in football and how, how we're dealing with other races in football. It's like it's, we, we try and make out that it's this massively inclusive game until it's completely inconvenient for it to be so. Like the thing with Syria that I always, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, excuse my French in about 30 seconds, but they say, oh, it's a sign of respect that we're insulting these players because we obviously think it's good, so that's why we're insulting him. Bullshit. Like, you can insult a player without racially abusing him, you can have a go at him without racially abusing him. You don't have to bring his color into it, and the reason you're bringing his color into it, uh, his, and, his, and his race and his ethnicity is because there is an ingra- like an ingrained psychological aspect of racism in there. So bullshit is a sign of respect. <laughs> yeah, like every league has its issue. I mean, England has had its issues. I mean, Mitrovic got an, the same ban as Suarez did for racially abusing, for getting a bit angry at the referee. Like, I know he shouldn't have done it, but is that the same as, as being racist towards someone? No. I mean, France is horrendous. Syria has had this ongoing problem where it just... There are people that care about fixing this issue in Italian football, but the league has the league entity itself has no interest in, in trying to solve this. They don't do anything to help themselves. They don't... Like, everything they... Even if there's a well-intentioned thing, it's just a horrendous idea. That, and, so, and who is informing them that, that, of doing these things? So, yeah, I mean, hopefully... Uh, Lukaku's red gets overturned I don't know why the ref even felt he had to do that I think questions have to be asked of that too the whole situation was just shocking 
Farcical is the is that probably the word you're looking for there, Danny? I think farcical is probably the way to explain it. But now on to something the Italian league do care about, which is the Juventus situation. Uh, we're moving on for that swiftly, but it, again, at the same time, like we can say all this, we can keep ranting about it, but the fact is, it just is something that needs to. It's a systemic issue in Italian football, and it's something that needs to change. And the fact is, is I think it'll take a long time before it does. But I hopefully we start to have the conversations that are needed to actually start actual action happening but the Juventus hearing is on the 19th of April that's been confirmed now and Paratici that was a big thing that happened over the international break it was kind of hilarious how Tottenham dealt with it it was Paratici's been banned and then Tottenham were like oh we'll, we'll wait and see what happens while we're actually looking for a new manager and Paratici needs to like the director of football needs to be doing something and then a couple of days later they were like oh yeah we probably need to get rid of him because it's it's not going to work out for us. We actually need to have our director of football right now. So he's been banned for is it thirty months across all leagues uh, across all football. Like it's not just in Syria that got extended into a global ban by FIFA. It's just it's just a weird it's such a weird situation this Juventus thing. Like it's so it's so weird how it's just obviously because because everyone from it's moved on now. How it's just going to kind of like be grabbing people back in from outside of Juventus. The funniest thing was that Paratici announced that he was stepping away from his role, even though he was banned from doing it. So that's fun. Like, he stepped away from something he legally cannot do. I have stepped away from my door, even though the door has been locked behind me. This is a huge, huge um, hearing on the 19th. I mean, the sort of ramifications if Juventus won the appeal and the 15 points is reinstated and then... Roma, Inter, Milan, it all, they'll all be very angry about it and that obviously it's huge on the future of Juventus as well because Champions League money will be huge to what they can do in the summer and how they kind of move going forward. If they don't get it, do they have to sell players? Do they have to make cuts? Like it's, They're obviously still in the Europa League and they could win that and get through the Champions League that way but this is probably their biggest chance to to secure that Champions League money. So, yeah, it's got huge, huge ramifications lying on it. It'll be very interesting to see the reaction either way. Yeah, it's also the case that um, once that hearing gets held or dealt with, like they could move on to more stuff after that. Like they could, there could be further things brought forward because there has been talk about that there's other charges that some of the uh, the Italian FA want to bring against them this probably won't be the last court case in, of this sort of thing not even just against Juventus um, there's a lot of rumours about different stuff so yeah this might be the first of many across the, the next few years and um, probably not even just within Italy yeah, I think I think a lot. Of, I think I think because of all this, the stuff that's been happening recently, there is a lot of a move across every single league to kind of clean their act up in terms of financials and stuff like that. Because the, the idea, like the idea that clubs have been getting ahead and causing, like one clubs have been getting ahead, but two also putting their financial future at risk. In other, in some cases, is kind of like, well, we don't want this to happen because it could completely undermine like football in different countries. So, yeah, we will probably see a couple of that over the next couple of years. So, putting a, putting a pin in that there, we'll wait and see what the result of that case is. We'll start talking about what our our main subject is today, which is Bologna. Bologna are doing really well this season. 
I'd say they're doing really well, actually, because they're on 40 points. They're in eighth. Um, they're currently six points off their points total from last season, which saw them finish 13. So they're doing pretty well. And they're doing a lot of good things. So we're going to start on, on a dour note, and then we're going to talk about this. Um, Milikovic, um, obviously, he was fired five games into the season um, because they hadn't won. Um, he then, unfortunately, passed away uh, later on from cancer. It's a really sad thing, obviously. Like he was really beloved within the city of Bologna for what he'd done for the team. It's kind of, it's a dour, it's a dour note on sort of this good season because, obviously, like as I said, he's really beloved. He was a really great. A lot, a lot of people have said he was a great man as well as a great manager. And obviously, like it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like it, it, it's above football. It's above that sort of thing. Like someone means so much to a, a city because of what he's done through football, but then it becomes such a greater thing when that person passes away. So, do you have any thoughts on that, Danny? Yeah, I mean, should be noted, like he was an insanely talented footballer in Italy first. So he won the league with Lazio under Svenjo and Eriksson. He's a lot of people's favourite free kick taker of all time, and then obviously. He came into Bologna, I think, well, it'll be five years ago now, but he did four complete seasons with them. Um, they'd been promoted and kind of sat around 14th, 15th for a couple of years. Uh, they were threatened with relegation when he came in. I think they were 18th and he finished 10th, which was the best top division finish they'd had in a long time. Um, Bologna are like one of Italy's most successful clubs in terms of Serie A titles. They've got seven but they were way back in the day, like they've got more than Roma and, and Lazio, and, but they've not had success in a long time, and he kind of steadied the ship and finished 10th, 12th, 13th and 13th, which was last season, and he was just, yeah, beloved by everyone. He was a honorary citizen of the city. He was probably the coolest dress coach <laughs> in football. He usually had his off-white Jordans on, his tartan flat cap um and his big coat like he was he was a larger than life figure and yeah he was actually sacked a few games into this season which was i think the the sporting director or the president spoke about how difficult that situation was and even milhajevic at the time was not happy with the decision he believed he could turn it around but yeah, then in December, I think it was complications with leukemia is what he officially died of. But yeah, I think that kind of really hurt everyone at the football club because he had become such a integral part of like Bologna as a place, not just a football club. Yeah, uh, obviously it's it's been a few months now since that happened, but there's still thoughts with his friends and family and stuff like that. Like it's just a terrible thing to go through, especially when someone's like so young in like the general sense, like. But obviously, like it was, a, it's a big thing. It's like a, it sort of was like a cataclysmic event in Bologna in terms of like everyone kind of stopped and went, oh, like one of the managers was sacked a few few months ago, and now obviously he's passed away. So it's an incredible thing, sad thing that's happened. But then he was replaced uh, by Thiago Motta, who, who's who's been doing a lot of good things. Obviously, like Thiago Motta has been been through a hard time. In terms of his managerial career, he 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 started he started very, let's say his banter era as a manager started from minute one. In terms of he didn't actually say anything wrong, but everyone seemed to take shots at him. Obviously, like he he was the one who coined the two seven two uh, formation, 
which everyone was like, oh, that's ridiculous. But when you actually listen to what he said, it do, it makes complete sense. And we were discussing this before we started recording. Um, he was saying that he views the the formation from the sideline. So he sees it as 2-7-2, like two people on each wing, seven in the middle. Uh, and also the goalkeeper is one of the major parts of the formation, hence why it adds to 11. But he was also kind of was talking about how you can say all these formations like 4-3-3, 3-5-2 and everything and he put labels on them as an attacking formation and defensive formation and he was like, well that doesn't make sense because you can have a defensive 4-3-3 and you can have an attacking 3-5-2. Like he was saying like, I don't like seeing the game that way. But of course, as soon as someone says something which sounds outlandish, even if it has a good explanation from it, the good explanation gets thrown out the window and the outlandish thing just kind of gets plastered and attached to you. Yeah, so he was at the under-19s with PSG when he said that. Then he moved to Genoa for a couple of months. I don't think Genoa kind of... The players there really got it, what he was trying to do. Because obviously he has... It's not just, oh, 272 and Vamos. Even though he's Italian and he wouldn't speak in Spanish, but never mind. But it's kind of like he has a lot of good ideas about possession football and how he wants to play the game and how he wants to defend and stuff. And it doesn't seem like Genoa kind of clicked. But with this Bologna team, he's kind of seemed to have found his foot in. Yeah, but the two seven two stuff, like what he actually said around that made sense. He was like, Why can't my goalkeeper be considered a midfielder and build up? And if you look at teams like Man City, Liverpool, uh like even Inter with uh Onana, like these guys are very good with the ball at their feet and become like that extra man and build up. And then yeah, he was like you said mentioned that like people see a four three three as attacking, but why does it always have to be attacking? It can be defensive. It's positions don't really matter as much, and and that's where that quote came from. And yeah, he just got trolled with it. He went to Genoa, and I mean he lasted three months. I think they were dead last at Christmas, and he was sacked a few days after. I don't think we can hold too much against them in that regard. I mean. That's one of the most trigger-happy clubs in terms of firing managers anywhere, and and they seem to be doomed. And it was a club that he was at. It kind of springboarded his career as a player. He went there and then ended up at Inter and became like this very good defensive midfielder that we remember him for. Then he went to Spezia um, after Italiano had left for Fiorentina, and Spezia signed something like 22 people in one summer because they thought they were going to get a transfer ban. Uh, they actually appealed it and got it overturned, so that didn't matter. But he had to integrate this entire group of new players. And as we can, and as we can see from Chelsea, that goes so well. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to do, especially for a guy that's managed at senior level for like three months at the cellar dweller in Genoa. Like he had to deal with that, and Spezia stayed up, but there was a lot of. They didn't really like it to him too much. He kept uh, Inzola, who's like Spezia's star guy, out of the team. And even though he had some quite memorable wins, he won away at Milan in the season Milan won the league. Uh, and he kept them just up. Like He did well, but they didn't get on. It wasn't a, wasn't a holy matrimony. Um, and yeah, he didn't have a job at the start of the season, but has ended up at Bologna at the first international break. So I think he got appointed just at the start of September. And it was a shaky start. Um, I think he didn't win his first four games. He got booed. The fans weren't very happy with how the team looked. But then they went on a, a bit of a run and won four out of five before the World Cup break. And then after the World Cup break, we've obviously seen them now 
they are very like mid table though. Win a few games, lose a few games, draw a few games. That's to be expected. Bologna aren't the team to look to qualify at Europe at the start of the season. If they qualify for Europe, that would be incredible for the club. But yeah, he's four points behind Juventus with Juventus's points deduction. Um, on so they're on forty points. Juve are on forty four, and yeah, they're they're safe now. You've got that magical forty point marker, which was probably what he was asked to do this season. Um. And he's connecting with the fans, he's connecting with the players, which is what he hadn't done at his previous two clubs. So yeah, it's a good situation at Bologna, and I think Mota's found a found a home. Yeah, I've got, I've got to admit two things from that: Saladuela in Genoa tickled me more than it should have done. And also, I I do want to actually kind of think how many good how many defensive midfielders become good managers is something that I also want to point out because it's just kind of like it seems to be a very common phase. Yeah. Pep is the big one. Ancelotti was a midfielder, so like that's two. Conte was a midfielder. <laughs> just spend the next spend the next ten minutes of this podcast just just sitting here naming Javi Alonso next one. <laughs> yeah, Steve. Oh no, Steven Gerrard. Um... <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't. A, he was more of an attacking midfielder. Not a good coach though. <laughs> mid, 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 midfielders who plays in pivots. Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, we'll talk. We'll talk a bit about their transfer business because I think that kind of uh, was one of the big things at the start of the season. They kind of sold a lot. At least they, they made a good profit this summer and it mentions one of the players that I don't particularly want to say because you'll start getting giddy. Obviously, they saw Arthur Theat. They had him on loan last season, bought him, sold him straight on to rounds. Um, he's doing well there. Aaron Hickey got sold to Brentford. Scottish. You know Danny's smiling at the other side of this camera right now. They sold Matthias Fanberg to Wolfsburg. He was really good for them. And then they also sold Cesar Folletti for one million. Anyway, um, but like that made forty-five million worth of transfers out. And I think that was a big, big for them because a lot of those players were really important players. Like Fanberg is probably the least well-known of those three because obviously Diet's been doing a lot for Rennes. A lot of people know him from there. But he was really important in their midfield. And then, obviously, Thiet was really good at the back and Hickey was really good going forward. So it kind of, it robbed them of a lot in terms of their uh, structure and their spine. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of incomings and outgoings this summer. If you go back to two years ago, I think their only incoming with a fee was Hickey from Hearts for like one point something million euros. And then they flipped him for 16.5 million to the Premier League club. Uh, then incomings, they brought in Cambiasso from Juventus on loan, who's this really talented uh, full-back, left-back. They brought in Xerxes, who was from Bayern, but has had it was on loan at Anderlecht. He's had sort of this weird career, and he's not really clicked at the club. But then probably the guy you knew I was going to mention eventually is Lewis Ferguson, who came in from Aberdeen and has been excellent for Bologna. scored quite a few goals he's like this he's a central midfielder but he likes to get forward he now finds himself in the Scottish setup uh, which is different from Hickey because Hickey kind of struggled to it's because you've got about 25 left backs that's why he struggles to get in there and also he can play right back yeah no he can play right back now he was playing inverted but like it's because you've got so many full backs in Scotland like how like Train get your coaches to train some other positions, Danny. <laughs> well, yeah. So the thing with Hickey was that at Bologna he was 
predominantly a left back, and there was me and uh, Reese Jenkins basically fought a lot with people on Twitter who wanted him to play as right back because like he'd played like one game there for Bologna in his time, and then Brentford signed him and turned him into a predominantly right back. He's very two footed, and it it helps for Scotland. So the only reason he's made it into the Scotland squad is because he's now a right back and he's the starting right back and obviously you've got Tierney and Robertson at the left back and another Scottish guy in Josh Doig who's in Syria who's also a left back and makes it into the under 21 squad so yeah we do have a lot of full backs but yeah that Hickey's kind of a perfect example of Bologna's recruitment so they get these guys from lower value markets they play them a lot in a top league Bologna are sort of that the team that aren't going to do anything special, but the team that aren't going to go down. Um, so it's a it's a good environment for young players, and then they'll flip them on for quite a bit of money. So Theate as well, signed him from Ustend in Belgium, sold him to Rouen in France for a hefty markup. Svanberg came from um, Scandinavia, which is another market that Bologna looked to a lot, um, and then sold him to Wolfsburg for nine million euros, which. Might seem like a small amount to a lot of people, but it's yeah. Like over the past few seasons, they seem to have always had a uh, a big sale, like over ten million euros on a sale. Like they had in eighteen nineteen, they sold Simone Verde to Napoli, that was twenty four million euros. Then they sold Florentino sold Pogard to Fiorentina, he was twelve million euros. And then like you had, I think like last last season they had Bani, which was not as much to Genoa. That was five million. It was a bit of a down season, but then they had. Tomiyasu and Scott Olsen, who were both two talented players. So they kind of are always on like a, a conveyor belt of bringing in talented players, doing all right, and then selling them. And I think as we've talked about their incomings here, I think they've replaced a lot of the players they sold really well um, this season. Obviously, we talked about Xerxes. He was their biggest outlay, and he hasn't really performed. But it's a very weird player, Xerxes. I don't know what his level is right now, um, but he might come good eventually. You don't know. Uh, obviously Ferguson's done very well he'll probably end up getting sold on um, to like a Southampton or something if they manage to stay up or the Leicester seems like a very Southampton or Leicester player <laughs> but then obviously like John Lacumi's come in from Genk he's kind of replaced the Ate in the defence and I think one of the players that's been really impressive for him is uh, Posh who came on loan from Hoffenheim he's only on loan I think they'll probably buy him permanently if they can get him if they can Sell, uh, get Hoffenheim to sell him even though I think Hoffenheim probably will need to sell him because they've not been doing very well in the league this season he's been incredible at centre back and we'll probably talk about a bit about him in a minute and also they got uh, Nicola Morrow on loan from Dynamo Moscow and he's also been really good um, in the centre of the park replacing Svanberg so we kind of should talk about some of their players um, they're a very edgy team and I think you said that they characterised mid-table and we said this a bit about Udinese the other, other week they are on dead zero goal difference like they have conceded uh, conceded thirty six goals, they've scored thirty six goals. So they kind of just edge matches or lose matches by at least really small margins, which is kind of good because it allows. I think that allows them, especially since they're doing well in the league, it kind of allows them to build from here. Arnautovic is their top scorer still. He's only played sixteen games. He's been injured a lot of the season, but he's on eight. But I think they've done a lot to. Uh, mitigate him miss being missing because he's a really important part since he joined like he, he kind of is a quite a regular goal scorer gets into good positions and the player that kind of has replaced him in that sort of attacking area is Orsolini I know you want to talk about Orsolini this has kind of been a really this is a really good episode for you because one you get to talk about your Scottish sons you get to talk about your Italian sons as well 
because you love Orsolini. Yeah, so Orsolini a few years ago was like this very, very promising young Italian player who was being linked with Juventus, was being linked with Inter, was being linked with like bigger moves abroad. But since then, it's kind of not hit as much and he's had to sort of become this mid-table guy. He's been very hit or miss. He's 26 now. But since Mota came in, he's been excellent. He's got seven goals and three assists in the league this season. Uh, he's he is a he's a right winger that is left footed, so he likes to cut inside. He likes to make those darting runs in behind. Um, Mota's been very very good for for Orsolini, and I think Mota is a very attacking minded coach, and he's a very modern coach. Um, so it's good for a player like Orsolini to have him uh, and Mota someone that's played at the top level and and Orsolini maybe will find that move I don't think I think Orsolini's time as a guy that might be a starter in a Champions League team is gone but I could see like Milan for example picking him up to be sort of a squad player and get significant minutes but yeah it's been a it's been a very very strong season for for Orsolini I'm very happy yeah I mean I think I think Orsolini might still have a chance it seems like in a lot of time in Italian football like they go older. Like Politano was probably milling about for a bit, and then he became uh, he became Napoli's starting guy. So that's a good sort of. There are those sort of guys in Italian football, maybe more so than other leagues, like Politano. So yeah, I think that's probably a good reference point for for where Orsolini could go, or he could just become like a club legend in Bologna. Who knows? Danny lives for the narrative. Danny lives for those stories. But as I said, like another player that's really been impressive for him is Posh. He's he's got five goals and one and one assist as a, as a defensive player. Like he's been really good for them. Um, he obviously scored a, a Michael Keane esque wonder goal. And I'm going to refer to it as a Michael Keane esque wonder goal because Danny really hates that I don't mention it as a Vincent Company esque wonder goal. Um, but he he he's been really good. At, he's been really good for them. I think as I said, he's on loan. I think they should bring him in permanently. Uh, I think Lukumi's been pretty solid. And I've really been impressed by Morrow in the centre. I think he's kind of been really good for him. He's he's very good at uh, the sort of like possession stuff that I think Motta himself. He's played sixteen games. I think that Motta himself kind of appreciates as that former sort of player. You see, like a lot of uh, as I said, a lot of midfield former midfielders appreciate midfielders who represent a lot of the ideals that they did as a player. Uh, so like Pep likes Rodri. Conte liked Marchisio a lot, um, sort of like, and I think Morrill has kind of embodied the sort of thing that uh, Motta really likes. He's really comfortable on the ball. He kind of progresses it nicely. He kind of like allow. He's very. He looks. He's very silky and fluid with his passing. I think he's a, a very good player for them. Uh, is there anyone else that kind of? I mean, he's put next to Nicolas Dominguez, who is just a workhorse. I love Dominguez. He is just an absolute, just up and down, like, mental workhorse. I love him. But is there anyone for you that's impressed other than Lewis Ferguson? I think I really like Musa Barrow. Um, I think maybe towards the start of last season, he was sort of on fire. And I was like, maybe some sort of Champions League or a team with aspiration of Champions League could pick him up as, a, like, a lower value alternative to more expensive players then he kind of fell off the rails a bit he's 24 um so it's not not like he's washed but he's come back into form he's only got three goals and four assists but he's he's quite electric and 
Barrow on one wing and Orsolini on the other is kind of key to to how Bologna attack. I think if you look at like the minutes of the squad, the sort of core outfield players are Lukumi's 24 is second most minutes. Then down from there, you've got Posh who's 25, Schutten who's 26, Cambiasso 23 on loan from Juventus, but you could probably make that permanent. Ferguson 23, Dominguez 24, Orsolini 26. Like they've got a really good core of younger guys coming into their prime and that's sort of Bologna's model. So I wouldn't I would expect a few of those guys, like you said, Ferguson will probably get sold off to maybe a Premier League club. I don't really know what Ferguson's ceiling is. Um but yeah, you could get easily ten million for him. Lakumi will probably end up going for quite a bit. So yeah, I think They've got a really nice squad makeup. Then it's peppered with some, well, experience and Gary Medell, Arnautovic, probably forgotten guys of of yesteryear. Maybe not so much Arnautovic, who's still a very good player. Like you said, he's the top scorer. He still makes noise at um, big tournaments for his country. He's a very controversial figure, obviously, but yeah, very very good footballer. Um, and then you've got Soriano, who's this Serie A staple. He's been in the league for so long now. So yeah, they've got a really nice squad makeup uh, of of sort of a mix of experience and younger guys who they'll end up selling for higher value. Sign guys again for at twenty one, twenty two for low value from Belgium, from Scandinavia, from Scotland, and then they'll the cycle will repeat again. They know what they're doing, Bologna. I also just as a point, I actually just as a little fun thing. I, I think that maybe their left hand side has the highest added shirt number together that I've seen in a in a good time. Like they've got Barrow who obviously wears ninety nine because he's as good as two nines. Um, <laughs> maybe in his head. And then they've got uh Chalampos, uh who's got seventy seven. So that probably goes to hundred and seventy six in terms of shirt numbers down the left hand side, which I just I just I just noticed it when I was looking before and I was like, I, I quite enjoy that like that little bit of things. I think we should we should focus on that more. But in general, I think I think you've got a strong side. I think obviously like the missing Arnautovic has done a lot for him because he kind of plays Sansoni up front and he's not as good. Uh, he's obviously he's one of he's probably what someone like Arsenal looks at as the way that something could go wrong. Like obviously you have Politano on one end of the spectrum as oh you can go elsewhere, you can be a good player, you can finally come into yourself, and then there's Sansone who was. I don't know what happened with my career. I ended up in Villarreal for a bit and then <laughs> came back to Italian football. So, yeah, we, we just kind of talk about what their aspirations are for the rest of the season. I think, obviously, Fiorentina are going to overtake them. I think, I think that they're, kind of, they're in a bit of a false position at the moment because I think that, obviously, Fiorentina and Sassuolo both kind of stumbled and now that Fiorentina are on equal points with them and Sassuolo are three points behind them, there's a very strong chance that they'll just overtake them again. Obviously, they've got Torino and Udinese. I think Torino are a bit of a better side. They're kind of just a bit further on. So I think that they may end up dropping down to maybe like 11th. But I think points-wise, they'll definitely end up in a better position than they were last season because they've only got to win three of the last 10. And I think they've got a reasonable run from now. They've got Atalanta, which is going to be... Actually, they've got Atalanta, Milan... That's going to be strong for them. Verona, they should win. Then they've got Juventus, but then they've got Empoli, 
Cremonese and Lecce in there. So they should at least get three wins out of that, but they've also got Napoli, Roma, Sassuolo, Juventus, Milan and Atalanta. So it's like half and half. They've got some easy games, they've got some harder games, but I think they should end up with a better place than they did last season. Yeah, and I think the big thing for Bologna is they're not very solid defensively, so Mota's a very progressive coach. Although he does like he does appreciate where Bologna at, so they build up in like two different ways. They'll either use the double pivot, which is usually Dominguez and Shelton. I have no idea how you say his name, so I apologise. But they'll use them guys dropping deep, turning and, and playing these progressive passes between lines, or they'll just kick it very long to Arnautovic or Xerxes if they're playing, who are big, tall guys, and they'll try and flick it on for Barrow or Cellini, who are making runs in behind or dropping close to the attacker to sort of do it. But yeah, defensively, they like to push quite a few people forward, and you'll often see, like, there's a goal against Juventus away where it's like five Juventus players against the two Bologna centre-backs. Like, that's perfect encapsulation of the situations that sometimes happen because Bologna will push a lot of players up and, and only leave the centre-backs and then they're horrendously exposed, which probably is a bit encapsulated by that um, goal difference. Like, they've scored as many of the, as they conceded. They're very good going forward, but they're also very suspect going back the way um especially if they they like to press um Bologna but if they need to sit in defensively it's not a good situation they don't really have guys that like doing that so maybe that's why they tend to do quite well in the bigger games like they beat Inter recently so they like to press it and maybe that catches bigger teams off but yeah uh, I don't see them sort of going higher than they are now I, I think you're right that Torino are Torino have a better coach and I think overall slightly better players uh, Fiorentina definitely have a bit better squad and a more talented coach although that's probably unfair on Mata because this is his first good situation so seeing how they progress will be really fun so yeah I think they'll finish mid-table but they might beat their that Milahajevic 10th of a few years ago and that would be excellent for the club especially considering what it was looking like as the first few games of the season came in yeah I think that's definitely the case I'd like to just make a, a slight amendment to a previous phrase that I, I got a bit giddy talking about shirt numbers it's not actually Liko Giannis who's wearing number 77 that is it, he wears number 22 it's actually Kriakiopoulos he's he's there 77 he's played a lot of games this season he's been he's there the other left back. I just kind of got my numbers mixed up. I was like, "Oh, is it who wears the 77? But yeah, he he's uh, that's the 176. If they bring in Cambiaso, who is also a left back, that he I think his shirt number is something like 50. So it's not even that much of a drop off with their backup. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, like, Giannis is get your numbers up. Just just put it higher. Just go for a 67 or something. Get it get it so it's a nice. I'll go for 98 actually. Go for the the highest possible. It's like, <laughs> it's like a dart score. Um, what's the highest possible but yeah I think that kind of sums it up I think we've kind of talked a little bit about him obviously like they're a team that hopefully grow with Motta though I, I, I think if Motta does well uh, he kind of has that name recognition that if Inter need a coach like if, if, if Inter go down the way that some other teams have recently where they're like we need a coach to see us in the interim and also 
is well respected by all the fan base, then they could easily just go, Motta, do you want a job? Because some, some clubs have been doing that. But I hope that he kind of sticks around for a bit, learns his trade, builds himself up and kind of builds with this team um, over the time. Because I think that, it, personally, I think that it's kind of like him and Vincenzo Italiano, who are the two coaches that I look at, and I'm like, a big club could grab you, Vincenzo Italiano, because he's a really, really good manager, uh, and Motta just because of his name recognition within the game. Yeah, I'm, I'm like interested to see how Motta's like managerial career goes on. This could be a flash in the pan, or it could be... St- him actually finding somewhere to buy into his ideas and he then grows as a coach was, is all you need sometimes as a manager. Sometimes uh, players don't get that benefit. So yeah, uh, I'm not sure what happens next with Bologna Motta. I think this is a good platform to build on. I think it'll be another summer of turnover um, in the squad. So it's how he deals with that. He's obviously had experience of dealing with a lot of incomings in, in Spezia. <laughs> but yeah, understatement of the year from the, you there Danny I'm not going to lie yeah so maybe him and Steve Cooper can form a support group for having to deal with entire squads being bought in one summer be overloaded with Chelsea managers for three years I'm not going to lie uh, I don't know if Motto ever reached the top end of the game but he has some interesting ideas and I think he has the benefit of like I mentioned before like he's aware that I think he maybe he would love to play like Napoli do, but he is aware that he doesn't have the squad to make that, so he makes adjustments, um, which I think will stand him in good stead. But I also think he can be quite an abrasive figure and sometimes rub people the wrong way, which can often hold you back in the world of football. So yeah, I hope they buy more Scottish players. That's my final thought. Yeah, it's combining the two things you love. Italian football and Scottish players. It's just kind of like it's a great, it's a great little mix for you. Yeah, I think just on a final point with Motta, I think he's doing, I think he's doing it the right way because obviously, like, you see a lot of these possession managers and they kind of start out and there's there's certain managers that you look at them and you're like these ideas are great, but you can tell that they never really had to figure them out at a very a much weaker club. Pep's a really big one. It's like I've, I would have loved to see Pep Guardiola's football. Try to do it with like Norwich would be just a great thing because everyone always makes point he could get Norwich so high. I'm like, could he though? Because he's always really had good players, and that's this is the thing. This is no slight against Pep. It's like some ideas in football need good players. Like that's just a normal thing. Like that's just a, 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 a like a quite a standard thing. Like if you want to play possession football, you need players who can actually control the football. Like you can't go down to like Barnsley and go. All right, we're going to play tick attacker and see what happens. Like it's it's one of those things. I think that Motta is getting the education of I want to play really good possession football that requires really good technical players, but I've got to learn how to manage a team that doesn't have a lot of that quality. So I think that'll stand him in good stead going forward because I think that that sometimes helps managers in situations that they get into where they play teams who are specifically designed not to allow them to play the football that they want to play and it helps those sort of managers. So we'll have to see what happens there. I think that's everything. Thank you again for tuning in. This has been the Seriously Good Podcast. I have been Casey, and then my co-host has been Danny Corcoran. Danny, is there anything you want to say before we tune off? Hope everyone has a lovely bank holiday weekend, if that is where you're listening from. Yeah, I hope everyone has a good bank holiday weekend too. But again, this has been the Seriously Good Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. 
Thank you for tuning in after a very long break that we've had. Let's say a very long, it's like two weeks. But we'll see you next time. Ciao.